I always get a little bit um, nervous when I receive a WhatsApp text from one of the group just prior to recording time because I think, you know, something serious has happened and you won't be able to contribute or we're going to have to reschedule or something like that. Or we've, one of us has completely forgotten that we're doing it and we <laughs> yes. oh, reschedule. Yeah. <laughs> who and, sends those messages? <laughs> and, New uh, phone, who dis? <laughs> <laughs> The, the one that we got from Andy Hinchcliffe. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not going to make, you can't broadcast this. The one we got from Andy Hinchcliffe this morning, so my phone beeps and I go, oh no, what's Chinch done? Has he forgotten? What, what's, you know, something, it could be something serious. And when so do I ever do anything head. wrong? Come on. He's, Andy he's Hinchcliffe. Old, he's old. It could be a med- medical emergency. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the amount of colonoscopies he has, he might have an emergency <laughs> one. Of the, you know, it's gone weekly, not monthly. And um, he says, he says, be five minutes late doing toilet. The, the opposite of a colonoscopy. But the, the thing was, see, you shouldn't, but when I sent that, I, I thought, should I send this for this reason that you tell everybody? But uh, no, no, no. Morally, you, you clearly wouldn't do that. And you've gone and done it. And even though I was five minutes late, and yes, I've been to the toilet, I was still earlier than Steve. And how can that happen? And I've been on the school run as well. I've taken Primrose to nursery, yet I'm still on time, having toileted successfully. I, I had to go back from the end of the dog walk to collect Ed's bike, which had been, uh, which Kate had left for me on her walk to preschool uh, because Ed wasn't pedalling and it was becoming impossible to get him anywhere. <laughs> so I had to go and collect it. So I, I'm blaming my, okay. my occasional shit of a child for my lateness. Steve, what about you? Well, no, you said you were going to be five minutes late. We said we were starting at 10 past nine. So I dialed in at quarter past nine and gave myself the opportunity to make a coffee so that I too will be able to do toilet later. <laughs> this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Ed Balls, Stephen Wyeth, Coleman Balls, and Andy Hinchcliffe, Snooker Balls. The uh, food is a continuation of last week's theme of divisive dishes within a household or relationship. Uh, I had uh, rice pudding. Rory had fish pie. Cody mm. Schultz, who is our internet speed savvy US Air Force captain from Georgia, has sent this in. Dear Heinz, Hunts, Frenches, and Sir Kensingtons, you ask for divisive foods and I shall deliver. I put ketchup on my pasta. Penne, spaghetti, angel hair, ziti, or any types of pasta. I do not like regular pasta sauce and so cook plain pasta and only put ketchup on it. My wife, who is of Italian descent and comes oh. from a family that would make their own homemade pasta sauce, absolutely despises it. She hates the taste, the look, the sacrilege, but most of all, the smell of warm ketchup. <laughs> so bad that she refuses to make pasta unless her family's around to help eat the sauce that she makes. She also makes me eat in another room of the house so she can forget that I am eating ketchup noodles your ketchup connoisseur captain cody schultz he's added the title this time from warner robbins in, in, in georgia so any more of those to setpiecemenu at gmail.com how did that relationship survive the first time he did that yeah i would have thought that would be a deal breaker to be honest at least it's not brown sauce i don't know if they have brown sauce in america do they not have daddies is daddies a um they have daddies mummies and daddies and grandparents <laughs> they have yeah everything we have over here yeah yeah football <laughs> is chinch do you know what we're talking about today oh yeah yeah, no, I've been doing toilet. I've had other things on my mind. <laughs> we, we are asking today, what is international level? This is Ah, uh, I'll be good at this one. The highest level. And still to this day appears to be used as a benchmark for players. But is it time to challenge that accepted wisdom? Why do we wonder about whether a player might be able to compete at international level while they're excelling for their club in, say, the knockout stages of the Champions League? Uh, today we are asking, what actually is international level so that's to come um, and obviously fitting bearing in mind we're in international week who would have thought we would have been that well planned get in touch with the podcast setpiecemenu at gmail.com you can find us on twitter facebook and youtube as well gary farr 
has further a conversation that I thought I'd made clear was very much over last week. In sending in a soccer story, for which we are very grateful and have pocketed for a later date, he adds this. Like 50% of the set-piece menu lineup, I studied music and play the trumpet. Me and Steve were contemporaries. And go I know Gary. Up. I know Hi, Gary Steve. very well. Yes, hello, Gary. Hugh, your rhythmic analysis of the drum intro to EastEnders was shockingly inaccurate. Oh, God. <laughs> Who would have thought this would run and run? <laughs> it is two dotted quavers, three quavers, and four semi-quavers, not two crotchets followed by triplets. Sorry for the rhythmic pedantry, but that is just a cockney hill I am willing to die. Now, last week I rejected a listener's criticism. This week I accept in part a listener's criticism because like all journalists, I favor balance over everything else. While my rendition of the EastEnders drums was completely accurate, my decision in the moment to try and identify how it would be written was a poor one. Uh, however, shockingly inaccurate is in itself an analysis which is lacking some accuracy. Uh, Paul McCartney, you know, couldn't read music, so how it's written isn't the be-all and end-all. And yes, I just compare myself to Paul McCartney. Uh, Gary plays in a prestigious new, mu new music ensemble, and most of the music that he plays is rhythmically incredibly complex, so I'm going to go with him. Sorry, I know, Hugh, we go back a long way, but I'm going with Gary's, uh, Gary's expertise on this one, I'm afraid. Can I just... So we've got... Quaver, quaver, monster munch, scampy fry, hula hoop. Is that how it, is that how it goes? Yes, and Gary can get back in touch to say how rhythmically accurate that is. Excellent. Uh, next to Robbie Walls, who is neither Robbie Wells nor Bear correspondent Robbie Harms. Dear Hugh, Rory, Stephen and Sky Sports' second best co-commentator. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Hold on. Have I dropped below Goodman again? <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, nobody's going to challenge Goodman's preeminence anytime soon. As promised in my last correspondence, I've been working my way through a multitude of your previous podcasts and recently had a thought regarding SPM 177 and the influence of FIFA and Football Manager. I was just wondering if Chinch had ever been approached to be a commentator on FIFA or Pro Evolution Soccer during his illustrious broadcasting career. I, for one, would love to hear his dulcet northern tones while banging in virtual goals. Perhaps with Alan Smith and Martin Tyler no longer on FIFA, Stephen and Andy could fill that power vacuum as the next great commentary duo. If Lee Dixon can get on the game, surely Mr. Hinchcliffe stands a chance. I'm not um, too sure I'll be buying any future editions of the game, but if Chinch were to be on it, it may, may make me think twice. He's buried the lead there. Lee Dixon's on the game. Is, is the commentary not doing very well? <laughs> Just trying to make up his numbers. <laughs> um, Robbie continues, one quick point while I'm here. I was wondering what your thoughts would be on the lack of crowds and substitutions. Has the absence of supporters allowed managers to be more ruthless without having to expose their players to too much embarrassment? Recently, Callum Hudson-Odoi came on at halftime, only to be withdrawn 30 minutes later by Thomas Tuchel, while Josip Ilicic suffered a similar fate in the Champions League for Atalanta in the first leg against Real Madrid. Obviously, in the latter competition, the extra subs may be a factor in allowing managers to be more brutal in their substitutions. But it does feel as if you don't normally have this many cases of substitutes being subbed. There are those like Jose Mourinho who will sub whoever they want, whenever they want, even when there are crowds. But perhaps in general, managers are more free to do as they wish at present without the risk of being criticised by the crowd and without too much damage being done to the player's mental state. Of course, as I well know, having played local village football, being brought off in front of no fans is never enjoyable. But being subbed off in front of 70,000 must be a whole lot worse. Thanks for keeping me entertained during this latest lockdown. I'm racing through as many pods as I can. All the best from Robbie Walls. I think... The absence of crowds has definitely changed managers' behaviours in certain ways. And I think that's particularly the most obvious kind of impact has been that managers are much more content to take cautious game plans at, at home. I think you, you see, you're seeing that far more. And certain managers, and this isn't meant to be sort of criticism or diminishment of their wonderful achievements, but, but you know, David Moyes can set up in a, West Ham in a way that, that 
the London stadium might not tolerate quite as easily. Um, Everton, I think it's true of as well. Everton can play more defensively at home without having to worry that the fans are, and Spurs, they'd be the, the other ones, mm-hmm. that, the, that the fans aren't really on their backs. The substitutions, substituting substitutes, quiz substitutet ipsos substitutes. Um, <laughs> We've been the, talking too much about music, so Rory needs to get some Latin in. <laughs> the, um, no, do you know what it is? I, um, you know the T-shirt you bought Ed for his birthday? Yes. So I went on Redbubble and found it oh, right. in, an, in an adult size. Does Ed's got this thing at the moment about dressing the same? So like every night he'll declare that tomorrow is a, is a blue, green or grey trouser day and I have to wear the same. And there's a T-shirt on there that is quis custodet ipsos custodes. And that's why the phrase is in my mind. Anyway, the substitute thing, I can't work out whether that is something that we make too big a deal of outside football. That, that often there's a perfectly valid reason for it, whether it's Hudson Odoi not doing what, what he's meant to be doing and the manager thinks, right, well, you're not doing what I, meant, what I want you to do, so I'm going to take you off. Does that, does, I'm going to treat you like any other player. Or whether it's a tactical thing, as I think Ilicic was. I think Ilicic was brought off in the Atlanta game because they were down to 10 men and, and Desperini wanted more, presumably harder workers in midfield or whatever. I don't know whether we make it a big deal when we probably shouldn't. Finally, you'll remember last week we had a lovely email from Adam Skaggs, which both he and we accepted was a little self-indulgent. Of course, I then ruined that sentiment by asking for more like it. So here is Tom Bainan. Dear classic 90s Premier League footballer Andy Hinchcliffe and hangers on. (laughs) I like that. Back in November, I was I like that a lot. The Monday Nightclub on Five Live. On this particular edition, the chief soccer correspondent from New York Times was explaining for the second time in three weeks what XG was and how it worked. Yes, I'm very repetitive. (laughs) Exactly. After very clearly laying out the principles of XG, there was a moment of silence when a response simply came back of, yes, but what is it? Uh, Later that week, I mentioned this on a football forum I frequent, saying how frustrating I found that exchange and how much I longed for a more nuanced football debate on mainstream media outlets. I received a reply on the forum saying that if I wanted more Rory Smith content, I should check out a podcast called Set Piece Menu. Set Piece what? Set Piece Menu. A podcast where four friends talk football over food. The star of the show, I was told, is former Everton and England left-back Andy Hinchcliffe and his soccer stories. That is not how this works. That's, that's, (laughs) no, no, I can't, even I can't agree with that. That's nonsense. Could it be that there's a place where a journalist and a former pro can have a meaningful chat about football which doesn't get ground down in a clash of entrenched views between those that have played the game and those that have merely observed it from the outside? I was told that they take a football-related subject each week and then talk about it at length while eating a meal. I looked up said podcast on my podcast streaming app of choice and pressed play on what was then the most recent episode, SPM 204, Footballers in the Mainstream. What a delight it was. I immediately went back and listened to the preceding episode about sports in the mainstream. Upon conclusion of that pod, I selected some more pods from the extensive SPM back catalogue based on their subject titles. After five or six episodes plucked from the archives, a few recurring themes started to appear. Out of context reacher, SPM PLPL. For sake you don't go to VAR. (laughs) Mickey's cooking is excellent. Chinch's disastrous (laughs) IKEA house build in Portugal. (laughs) Eating very loudly. (laughs) Rory's sister never having a toilet in her house for some reason. something about buffaloes. Sneeve walking off to do something completely unrelated to the pod, but it's fine because he has really long headphone wires. (laughs) And finally, Joao. (laughs) Finally, finally, I won't tell him that. He won't be happy with that. 
Uh, all of these themes out of context, much like out of context reacher, make no sense at all. There was only one thing to do. Go back to SPM1 and start from the very beginning. In the past 108 days, I have listened to all 220 SPM episodes, and unlike Lee Child's long-running series, SPM does start to make some sense when consumed in context. An average of two a day, every day, for three and a half months. Excessive, maybe? Obsessive? Probably. The speed of my run through the SPM back catalogue is explained simply that I'm self-employed in the wedding industry, and I've had rather a lot of time on my hands recently. I live on my own, and lots Lockdown has been quite lonely, and neither of my cats want to talk in depth about how the offside and handball rules need to be changed in the age of VAR. <laughs> the useless <laughs> Couple this with the fact that my business has been decimated by the coronavirus over the past 12 months, and I quickly found solace from the harsh reality of the real world and the warm embrace of the set-piece menu universe during the second and third lockdowns. I know I'm not the first to say this, but it really is like spending time with friends. Recently, Steve mentioned that this was a safe space for nuanced football chat, and it really is. I've been able to disappear into the world SPM regularly over the past three and a half months, and I can't thank you all enough for the joy, laughter, and escapism which you've enabled in that time. It's a tribute to the genuine friendship that you have that it's easy for those of us eavesdropping to feel like we're at home in your company. Over the course of SPM, you have talked about over 200 subjects, and like most SPM listeners, I have something to say about all of them. So bear with me as I talk you through each... No, not really. That would be awful. <laughs> in fact, there is only one subject which I feel I need to revisit. One subject which I can't leave hanging out there in the ether. One subject which is briefly raised and then immediately dropped. One subject which towers above all others as the most vital and pressing in these times. Motorway service stations. Mm. In SPM 98 on burnout, the fade in chat led to Steve and Andy talking about their regular stop off for a drive through coffee at the Starbucks at Keel Services on the M6. Rory interjected to say that Keel was a bad service. It is. Hugh yeah, then is. quickly yeah. agreed. Yeah. To fan the flames even more, Rory then said one of the worst service stations in the country was Beaconsfield on the M40 near the M25. There's a problem. Yes. What, what are you trying to achieve? In both my <laughs> professional and personal life, I have travelled extensively around the UK Motorway network over the past 15 years and have become well acquainted with service stations from Aberdeen to Exeter. And I can confidently say that Kiel is a great services. So is Beaconsfield. In fact, they are two of the best in the country. Steve said that any services on one side of the motorway should be ignored completely. He's certainly yes. not wrong. Yeah. That is definitely yeah. a mark against it, as the traffic flow in the car park is twice as busy and doesn't flow nicely in the same direction as the carriage where you've just left. However, mm. the standard of the actual services is high enough to mitigate this. In fact, the chain that runs Beaconsfield, Extra, is the gold standard of motorway service station chains. The company that runs Keel, Welcome Break, is a close second. Of course, none of these compared to the very best UK services, the independent Westmoreland farm shops located on both the M5 in Gloucestershire oh, and the M6 yes. in Cumbria. Finally something, yeah. finally yeah. something finally correct. Something sense. Yeah. Yeah. We got there in the end. As anyone who has used these will know, they are very much the Messi and Ronaldo of the motorway service station <laughs> world. Keep up the excellent work. Tom Bainan from Neots in Cambridgeshire. P.S. Manager most likely to eat a packet of crisps while taking a poo, Sam Allardyce. Oh. Definitely. <laughs> oh, no. uh, or Chinch about 20 minutes ago. The... <laughs> The one service station that I'm really intrigued by that I never get to use is Weatherby Services, which is new, but it's mm. about a mile and a half from my parents' house. So there is literally no reason to stop. Partly because my parents' house has a toilet, but mainly <laughs> because it also has a petrol pump. The, um, <laughs> it doesn't really. But all, and I never get to go, and it really frustrates me because it looks like quite good services. But he's right, T-Bay and the one on the M5 are the best services in the country. I'm also impressed that people do like our sort of familial friendship vibe given that after SPM 103, we replaced both Chinch and Steve with actors. <laughs> Steve, you and I have a, 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 a hankering for <clears throat> Warwick services, don't we, on the M40? Oh, that is, there's a fountain at Warwick. There's yeah, we exactly, like, yeah. class, Warwick's class good. services. Oxford, Oxford's excellent. Very oh. good. Weatherby, Weatherby, 
don't don't go out of your way, Rory. Oh, really? It's exactly the same as Cherwell Valley on the M40. They're pretty much identical, and that's also appalling. It is Cherwell <laughs> Valley. Cherwell Valley is too far from the motorway. It makes no sense. I'm slightly, I am slightly concerned about Tom's judgment because if he thinks uh, Beaconsfield is okay, then he's going to make an excuse. He's going to try and give us a reason that South Mims on the M25 is acceptable, <laughs> and it really is not. And also, it, the he's most generous. He's, he's got a list. He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> the most generous. You know, the most generous thing that Tom said in that entire message, of which there was lots of lovely things, was that we'd had over 200 subjects which we haven't. We've had over 200 podcasts. We have, <laughs> yes. no, there is no way that we've had over 200 subjects. The thing about Beaconsfield is that it could be quite a good services, but there's a pub in it. And also it's full of people. It's far too busy. That, that they are the, it, the problem with Beaconsfield isn't the facilities, it's the population. <laughs> That could be said for, I imagine, a lot of service stations. But, Tom, Quite thank you very much uh, for, being, yeah, for being in touch at, at such great length and with such great sentiments. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, it is time for us to evangelise about midriff topiary. Support for Set Piece Menu is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. The Lawnmower 3.0, being displayed now by our model, Chinch, is an extraordinary piece of kit that comes in a very desirable presentation case and is now available to UK customers after Manscaped launched in the UK and it's already trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, four of whom sit before you today. Add your name to that 2 million by going to manscaped.com where you can get 20% off and free delivery with the code SPM. You may well have heard this on other podcasts. They may well have given you a code too. Use ours, not theirs. We need it more. Uh, there is a new ceramic blade to reduce accidents on the Lawnmower 3.0. There's a light to show you where you're going, which I can tell you is very user-friendly. It's a really good feature, that. Really, really useful. Uh, the battery will last 90 minutes if you need it for that long. Shave in the shower as well because it's waterproof. The motor is 7,000 RPM. You've already heard that from Chinch. It uses quiet stroke technology too. There's a charging dock if you need <laughs> a, a mid. Chinch has just, just taken what is the, the ball toner and sprayed it into his mouth. That is, that, is, that is not recommended. Anybody who's ever used a trimmer or clipper or shaver or razor not specifically designed for this particular area will know the slight fear that, that accompanies any attempt to groom. So we say to you, that will no longer be the case with the Lawnmower 3.0. Uh, now, we've also been sent T-shirts that we're wearing. Um, so this on the video content will look excellent. And also, we've been sent underwear. Now, Chinch doesn't usually employ the use of underwear. Um, but given that, I made sure that he got an extra large version when the rest of us had large. And here he is now going into his underwear drawer and picking out one of only two pieces of underwear he has. And uh, Chinch, could you give us an, a little... Oh, that's the these other one. My, these are my other underpants. Classy. <laughs> but not as classy as these. Look tell, at this. Tell us about how they feel to wear, given that you don't usually wear them. Oh, they feel, it's like a second skin, especially around my nether regions. I'm gonna have to get used to generally that. Are. Yeah, yeah, that's where they go. Yeah, but I don't, I don't experience this day by day. So it's <laughs> a new started experience. Didn't start out by putting them on his arms and- It's like, what's <laughs> going on? Where did these go? His movement was restricted a little bit though. He was like a, <laughs> like a T-Rex walking around. Trial and error, you'll get there. They're very comfortable, but I find it very hard to cook. You can get 20% off. Yes, 20% off. You can get 20% off with free delivery with the code SPM. Just head to manscaped.com and enter the code SPM. 20% off with free delivery at manscaped.com. Use the code SPM. Your balls and we 
um, somewhere down the line, I hope, financially, uh, will be grateful. Mm. Uh, your other, is your other pair of underwear camouflage so that you can pretend that you're not wearing underwear? <laughs> Yeah, actually, yes, I think that's what it is. I think they're, they're desert storm pants. Those are they? Are they? Are they? Are they jungle? Are they jungle um, camouflage? That since they're blue and white, I don't think they'd be yeah. much stored in the, in the what, jungle. What kind of what kind of uh, what kind of theatre of war would these be? Uh, <laughs> to be honest, bullet? although to be fair, if your pants are down in a war situation, you're gonna I die. I was going to say that, they, that presumably camouflage underpants would only be of use in a in a really erotic theatre of war. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's, that's exactly my type of theatre. <laughs> don't think the soldiers are wandering around with camouflage pants. Well, it depends what uh, what unit you're in. <coughs> uh, I don't know what that means, but it sounds sexual. Uh, now, one of the things that motivates us here at Seppi's Benny is the opportunity to rail against assumptions and attitudes that we think have gone unchallenged for too long. Essentially, our shtick is everybody says something. We say, really? Really? The next footballing rabbit to be in our contrarian headlights is... International level. What is international level? We all say it. Most use it as a derivative for the highest level. But how can that be true in an era when clearly the best club side would likely beat the best international side and some players who represent the country can't get in their club team? Or are there many international levels? The level of the France national team, for example, is surely completely different to the Mauritania national team. Or might it break down even further? For English right backs, the level is currently high. For left backs, it has always been very low. So what is international level? And should the designation still be used in the way it always has? It's a hangover, isn't it? It's the same as when we say that someone's the best player in Europe. You know, he's the best midfielder in Europe. W what we mean is the world, because or by definition, if you're playing in Europe, you're probably better than everybody else in the world. That, them, that, that It is theoretically possible that there might be some sort of midfield sensation playing for Palmeiras or Flamengo or somebody. But the chances are there aren't because they've not proved it yet because they're not playing in Europe. So it's international level is a hangover from the 50s, 60s, and probably 70s. That era, possibly even into the 80s, but I don't think so. Um, when when the international game was the the absolute kind of highest level pinnacle of, of the sport. And it's part of our, it's become part of our lexicon, but it's become detached from its original meaning, basically. So international level is a way of saying very good that once had a direct connection to, to the actual phrasing of it, but now doesn't. Is it also end of podcast? <laughs> Is it also something we use colloquially? Because when you're talking about international level, people are only really talking out about players that qualify to play for their national team. They're not judging overseas players in that same way. In this country, Ooh, when we're talking international level, what we actually mean is good enough to play for England. We're not making the same assessment of players from overseas. I don't believe. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably right. It's a way of saying, with English players, it's a way of saying that they should be under, under consideration for the national team. Yeah. I think that's but, probably right, yeah. But, but, but I think you're both right about both those things. But the reason that came most recently to mind was in the Champions League last 16, I think it was Reese James playing for Chelsea. And given that he was playing for a team like Chelsea, who are going to contend for Premier League titles, have done so already, have a new manager, which is sending them to extra high heights and playing good football. And, you know, they're already... Um, having beaten Atletico Madrid in the last eight of the Champions League. And it was genuinely put to the pundit who was working that game that there was some doubt about his quality because he hadn't yet proved it at international level. Or there was some question about whether he would be able to step up to 
international level, which completely baffled me because to be playing for that team in that competition at the level that they currently are, surely that dwarfs anything that that player might then experience over the course of their international career, given the players that they'll play alongside and the players that they'll play against. And also the nature of the football. That This is a point that Miguel Delaney has made to me, and he will write, just Miguel writes literally all of his thoughts down eventually. Sooner or later, Miguel will write a piece on everything. But this one, like most of his pieces, is entirely valid. And that's that international football for a long time was the was where new ideas were formed, that you'd watch World Cups or European Championships and you'd see not only the best, the best players, but you'd see the best ideas, the cutting edge of kind of how football was played. That isn't true anymore. You can make a case that international football is now essentially a different sort of species of the same sport, a different like family of the same species, if that makes sense, yeah. To, yeah. to club football. In the same way as, this is, a, this is a, like a hot button issue, I don't want to start a debate or anything, but you know, the conversation about women's football and that sometimes people say it's the same game and sometimes people say it's not the same game, You've got to, except it's different. It's the same game, but it's a slightly different version of the same game. That's the easiest way of thinking about it. And I think international football, men's international football and, and men's club football, elite men's club football, is much the same that you 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 will not see in the Euros this summer, those kind of absolutely perfectly choreographed, orchestrated pressing styles that you get in the Premier League and the Champions League, because international managers just can't do it, mm-hmm. which means that you end up playing slower and more possession based. It's it, you the Euro the Euros this summer, like the World Cup in twenty twenty two, and like every major international tournament, will showcase a different style of football to the elite club game. But again, I think this is a it's a part of of football's lexicon that hasn't been been updated with the times. So for a long time, the natural state, the natural assumption was, the correct assumption was that if a player was doing well for his club in the domestic league or in Europe, the, the next stage in his development would be, can they play at international level? Whereas now we kind of need to rethink the structure of football's sort of theoretical pyramid. Do you know what I mean? That, that international football is probably... Below, certainly below the Champions League, and I'd say is below the top class of the domestic game. So, if you've got a player playing for Villa, say, or Newcastle or Southampton, you so let's take James Ward Prowse. So, James Ward Prowse has proven he can do it in the Premier League at a mid table level. He then needs to prove he can do it at international level. And once he's done that, he needs to prove he can do it at top six of the Premier League level. And once he's done that, he needs to prove he can do it in the Champions League. That's the bigger question. But I find it strange as well that when a player is doing well, either in the Champions League or, or the Premier League, for one of the bigger clubs, that there's this assumption, you know, sh- you know, does this mean that he should be in Gareth Southgate's thoughts? Well, yes, obviously, because there's not that many players to pick from and he's playing at a high level and he needs to play international football. The, the question more should be, if a, or realistically, the question should be that if a player's in the England squad, should he be in the thoughts of the big six team? When, when we say international level now, do we mean is that player versatile, adaptable enough to make the transition from playing effectively the same way every week or within a, within a structure that his club manager demands of him 90% of the time or her? Is he adaptable enough to make that transition to play a different style of football at perhaps a different tempo with different tactical focuses from an international manager in an international match. It's not about necessarily being able to step up a level. It's about having the, the discipline and the skill set and the mindset to be able to take on different 
ideas and a different approach. Is that what we is that what modern international yeah. level is? This is why we all dovetail so well. You three have never kicked a ball professionally, certainly not internationally. That would never, ever happen for any country. No matter what citizenship you take, they are never, ever going to put you in the national team. But it is, it's the change in everything I did to get the opportunity to play for it. All the things I was doing at Everton, I had to actually kind of not do when you played for England because the game was completely different. You were with a load of players who didn't play the way that Everton played. And it was more about possession. And the, the first, don't give the ball away cheaply. So, again, you wouldn't try the passes that you would do for your club when you play for England. You wouldn't make the runs. You didn't have to. The, the game was completely different. That's why Roy is absolutely right. It changes completely. And having the ability to say, I'm very good at playing this way domestically, that gives you the opportunity. But then you have to learn how to play internationally. And we're presuming, or maybe in the past we presumed it was a step up to international level. I, I actually think it's the other way. I think it's actually a step down where you have to. You actually don't. It should be slightly easier I found it easier, Polly, because you've got better players around you than you probably play at with your clubs, with all due respect to the clubs I played for. You're playing with players at the top of their game, but you're not playing you're not playing together every week. So again, it gets a bit difficult. It's a bit disjointed, but the quality around you brings more out of you. But you do have to play a very, very different game. Not strangely, the game that got you the opportunity in the first place. So Steve's right. That versatility for players. And then that's, that's um, showing a coach or showing the public that you can play at international level and it's a different way of playing than you do for your club. It's a step sideways and down as much as yes, anything. I think yes, it's a different, yes. like, different style. I think that's probably what we should mean by it, that it's it's about versatility and the ability to adapt the way you play. But that I, I don't think that's how it's used. I think it's still used in that old-fashioned sense of it's a way of asking, sort of cr slightly cryptically asking, how good is this player? Can, can they play for England? Can they the, play at international the level? I think that's how I, it's used by, in commentary and in newspapers and stuff. When I, when I probably played for Everton, obviously I was taking all the set pieces and that. So your involvement's a lot more. You're probably getting more assists. That gives you the opportunity to play for it. But then when you play for it, you don't have the, you don't play in that way. You don't have as many set pieces. You've got other people that are going to be taking them, Shearer or, or Beckham, whatever. So again, people then from the outside will be saying, well, he's not really doing anything. Why is he there? But it's because you've had to adapt completely the game that you were playing. You're not playing how you play for Everton when you play for England. And that's, again, the reasons are there. And I thought I did realise that and say, well, maybe I just have to understand that I'm going to be passing 10-yard balls rather than playing long forward balls or cross-field balls or taking every set piece that there is, because it's not going to be like that. And it wasn't. Is there one element, though, in which international football, especially when you're talking about the latter stages of a major competition, where it is still a step up, even from the very late stages of the Champions League, and it's from a mental point of view, the scrutiny that comes with that responsibility, because suddenly once every couple of years, there's a situation where the football jumps from the back pages to the front pages. And it goes from being watched live games regularly by one or two million people to being watched by 10 to 15 million people on, on terrestrial TV. So there is there must be some there must be something about a player's mentality that requires him to be able to, to step up a level in that regards to be to deal with the increased pressure not that there isn't mm -hmm. pressure when you're playing for your yeah. club that's a really good point and if you think about the Pele documentary that was on Netflix or presumably still is on Netflix in which he cries before the he's on the bus on the way to the 1970 World Cup final and Steve's going with his long headphones now the um <laughs> the water water he's gone to the local the, shop but, but he can do it us. why can he do it because of his long headphone cable the, um, I barely, I barely left my seat. I just had to lean over the breakfast bar to the tap for crying out loud, people. 
The, um, <laughs> all right, all right. You and, your bid, you and your bid wire. Before I mean, the... It was a humble brag about the size of my breakfast bar rather than the size of the... Uh... <laughs> the before There's that scene of Pele crying before the 1970 World Cup finals. He's kind of so overcome by the emotion of it all. And if, if you think about it, that's Pele, who by 1970 was widely accepted as the greatest player in history, who had already won two World Cups, who should have been more at home. He was in his 30s, I think, or nearly 30. He was at... 1758, 20, 29. 29, 29. So he was kind of, he was an experienced international. He, he was the most experienced. He'd been at the centre of that circus for, for 12 years. He, he was Pele and he was still overcome by the emotion of it. So I think Steve's right. And yeah, that's a really valid point that the pressure that will come when you certainly get into the knockouts of a major tournament and as you build towards the final is, is like nothing that the players will have ever experienced, yeah. even if we're now you know, this summer there will be when the four teams get to the semis say all of those players pretty much will have grown up with the Champions League as the ultimate pinnacle of the game, That w- with winning the Champions League, or, or to be honest, winning the Ballon d'Or as being their ultimate ambition with international football kind of as an afterthought, the pressure that they are under to represent their country, to, to know that they could go down, you know, this is their moment in history for an entire nation, for possibly for an entire continent. To know, as Steve says, that if they don't, if they, that if they mess up, that that will be them vilified and and lampooned for months. That all of that pressure, that 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 is not something that is replicable anywhere really in club football. I don't think it's partly because with club football you get another chance. You always get another chance. That you know, if you if you if you're Loris Carrius in the Champions League final, your team might. Or if you get Loris Carrius in the Champions League final, your team could get back to the Champions League final the next year. With the World Cup or Euros, there's every chance that this is your last shot, that things will have changed so much in four years' time that you won't be in the squad or your team might suddenly be rubbish or you know that the draw might be really unkind or you might not qualify. I think that the pressure that's, that's on those players is, is probably fairly unique, in, possibly in all sports. Because but, that always, not, but that always defines a career. From, apart from Olympians, mis- maybe. If you made a, make a mistake in a Champions League final or in a Euros final or a World Cup final, would, would would, you'd be defined, what, if it's a goalkeeper, you, you tend to be defined by the mistakes that you make, don't you? But would it be worse, you're saying it'd be worse if you made that mistake in a World Cup final than in a Champions League final because, because of the recovery element in the World Cup that there isn't, that's it, and you're going to be that goalkeeper or but, that player that missed the penalty. Yeah, but also because of the, as Rory says, the regularity of the, yeah. of the Champions League allowing you yeah. an opportunity next year and the turnover of a squad being less year to year, so therefore you you stay together and you may be able to achieve the same heights. It's like uh, American sports, when you have a, a, a roster and you have a salary cap, the turnover through free agency and everything is is much, much bigger and quicker than you would have at a normal football club and as a result of that you do get a sense that if you don't do it this year yeah. and because of the changes that are necessary it may not end but but football isn't like that you're able to sustain the uh, a squad pretty much a club squad together but an international squad mm-hmm. is different because you never know in four years time a whole load of people could be out of form could have retired might not be relevant the manager might be different the circumstances might change the opposition might mm-hmm. be shifted in terms of how good they are uh, compared to, to you, you and your team. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's true. International level is about the ability to understand the magnitude of the moment and be able to still compete and excel in that moment. And so, yes, Steve, it is a, man- yeah. a mental thing as much as a performance-related thing. And, and that's how it should be used. It's not necessarily how it is used, but that's how it should be used. And, and as a great player at club level, you can chase trophies. You can move around in your mm. pursuit of that glory, mm. but you can't do that at international level. And it could be, look at, you know, a new example of this phenomenon, Erling Haaland. Well, 
he isn't going to win the European Championship or the World Cup with Norway. Let's save that comment for the moment he inspires them to eternal <laughs> glory. But he, he almost certainly will at some point win the Champions League. It isn't likely to be with Borussia Dortmund, but wherever he goes next or, or after that, he could be the final piece of the, the jigsaw in helping that club achieve that ambition. So that's the other difference, is that if you fail in a Champions League final you will either get an opportunity with that, you might get an opportunity with that club again in the future or with your next club. Mm. If you were to fail in a World Cup final, then that's likely to be a one-off and, and that level of disappointment. The flip side of that though, of course, is, and, and this is where international football does still um, remain the, the highest accolade, is the glory that comes with winning mm. a World Cup. In particular, that just can't be matched at club level at all. Any number of trophies at club level cannot replace the adulation that comes with with achieving for your country at World Cup level. Do you think it's better to, to, to I don't know, is it to a player, mm. would it be better to win the Euro? I think the, the World Cup is probably a level above still, even though, even though I, don't, I, don't, I don't think players are particularly motivated by, I desperately want to win the World Cup. I, think uh, I was just about more... to say, it can't have been particular to the England squad I was part of or, or England as a, as a nation. But I, I felt when I was there that the players, I'm not sure they actually enjoyed being there. Mm. I, I think clearly it was, they were so good that they were naturally going to get picked for it. I might have been wrong, but I, I didn't get the sense that the, the players that joined up with England cared about as much about being there as they did about playing for their clubs. And I always thought it must, again, it must be Champions League football. And I had that feeling at that time. So again, I, I really don't think I was, I was wrong in that. And that's not saying they didn't care and they didn't try. I'm sure that they did. Um, but it, I, the play, a lot of the players didn't get on with each other as well because of the kind of the club rivalries. And that's the main, you know, people not speaking to each other. I've talked about this before. And th this had happened for England squad for a long, long time, not just the, the squad that I was part of. But again, I think if you have that kind of feeling around the place, it, it's it's never really going to work, isn't it? And again, it's because the clubs to these players were more important than, than the national team. Is that when we're talking about the, the, the mental aptitude to be able to not earn, only kind of deal with latter stages of competitions and the, the tactical versatility to be able to shift into international football as well and to change the way that you play hmm. um, for that particular team? Is there an emotional immaturity that you're talking about there as well, Chinch, that perhaps those players that you're talking about weren't capable of being able to cross those club divides and have those conversations and be with those people because they didn't understand how to do that because they were much happier to be in the, yes, the warm, warmer climbs, if you like, warmer emotional climbs of their clubs. Yeah. And, and because perhaps even to give them a little bit more credit than I just have, they were perhaps a little shy and weren't emotionally intelligent enough to be able to make new friends because the friends that they had made had been ones that they had been with at their clubs, particularly, for example, the Manchester United crew for yeah. so long. Yeah, I think it's United and, and Liverpool would be the the because that that's kind of made up the kind of the uh, the bulk of the squad. But you're right, yes, an emotional, a real professionalism to say, yes, you can have disagreements and you're maybe not going to like people an awful lot, but you can still, you can still get the job done because that must happen in a lot of nations. There must be these problems between players. There've been bad tackles, bad feeling, but surely if you're going to be successful, you have to put that to one side. You have to be. The bigger man. If you can't do that, there's no way, no matter how good you are, you're going to be able to pull together and, and get the job done. But it, it is, I never really, again, I don't think about a, a lot of stuff to do with my football career as much as maybe I should do. But it, it's something I didn't fully appreciate is that this, how different it could have been and how other nations tend to get the best out of that. How does that happen? Is it the coach? Is it, it has to be the players. 
how they feel about being there, how they can adapt to a different way of playing and adapt to different people around them. Ultimately, it is all down to the players. And once you've got that, then it's easy for the coach to, to, to get the job done. Presumably, it's, it's to do with their education, isn't it? That it's, if, you, if you're brought through playing lots of different systems, you'll be much more comfortable changing systems in different it scenarios. It seems to be the systems. It seems to be the people they were with. Right. And it was kind of, you know, if you spoke to, if one guy spoke to someone else from a, another, even in just in passing in a corridor, they'd be kind of nudging each other and saying, what are you doing that for? It was that where you got to, or if you're even passing the ball to, it was very, very, I was watching it again. But being, if you were passing the ball to somebody from a different it, club? It, it, I, I think it did get to that level where it was very, I told the story about, so was it Phil Neville wouldn't come and sit with us, he'd rather stand on the coach with his United. So I understand that togetherness. But again, if you've got a spare seat and you can sit down, but if he'd have done that, the ribbing he might have taken from his teammates would be, what are you doing sitting with? It's just, again, that if that's the mentality, that's what makes United or that group of players incredibly strong for their club. But if you take that mentality and say, there's five or six of us here and you know we are very much together and you're not going to, again, free yourself up and allow other people to come into that group or you to go out into other groups, there's no way. There's no way. But if you've got that, it's not one or two people, it's you know six or seven that's a, a big part of the squad, so it's difficult. And I don't think coaches would ever be able to break that up and say, look, we, again, we're going to have to do something differently here to succeed. And it is down to you wanting to, to do things differently. But if it is all about your club and beating Liverpool and, and winning titles and getting to the chat, I understand that. That's, that's the bread and butter of your profession. Playing for England, I think they saw it as a, as a natural place to play their football. But again, they couldn't really get past what made them successful at club level. I wonder if part of that like Hugh says, it, that could be kind of that they're so immersed in the tribal loyalty that it's really hard for them to, to put yeah, it aside for a couple of weeks. Absolutely, yeah, I can understand it autumn. completely, but, you, but yeah, I do wonder change, whether you have to change. Yeah, we we should always remember that that these you know that these you're talking about young men, and you you too a long time ago, Chinch, were a young man. Now you might have been was, a more mature yeah. young man than than others, but if you're you know if, mm, if you're was, 20, 23, 24, 25, I was probably, 23, 24, or twenty five. Definitely, I was. You you probably don't there. know. You don't no. know necessarily how to break down those social barriers a little bit. So maybe, maybe like Hugh says, it is shyness. But I wonder, it's not unique to England. Mm. If you think about the Dutch at Euro 96, where by all accounts the, the tables were segregated along racial lines at the training camp, that the, the white players didn't eat with the black players and the black players didn't eat with the white players. If you think about France in 2010, when there was the, the I can't say it, but the rebellion at a place with the begins K-N-Y-S-N-A, Tunisna, which is where their training base was. And there was there were splits among like Nasri and Evra, and there were, the, there were these kind of political games going on and these faction, factionalism within, within the squad. I, I wonder whether that's actually a much more significant factor in, in international success than anyone really gives it credit for. That yeah, if you I think look, it is. Yeah, but Eng England didn't have that maybe religious problem or racial problem. It wasn't like that. It, it was, was just, just the I clubs, think yeah. It's just the actual clubs and the mentality of the players. Understand that they've been brought from leaving school at 16 or something and in fully entrenched in United. I'm just talking about because that was the bigger bunch of players at, with that England squad. So I'm not having a go at them in particular, but that's what made them so strong at club level. But again, mm. it caused them the problem when they were put in a, with another 16, 17 players from other clubs, they probably thought, why are these guys here? We don't, we don't, you know, we're not, we're not, they're, they're not kind of, they're not like us. I think that is the problem. And would they have also had a manager who didn't necessarily fully support their playing of international football at all times? You know, this is a manager who's not only not English, but he is also somebody who would rather yeah, yeah. Manchester United be prioritised above all nations, um, even Scotland, one would imagine. But so, so Repub there's... there's the Republic of Mancunia <laughs> yes, banner, exactly. which represent is, uh, that yeah. and nobody else. So, that, so there's that as well. So you can kind of understand it. Um, 
if we just go back to, to, to finish the conversation, we go back to the point that we originally made about just playing ability, quality of, of a player's uh, football. And we think about the Trent Alexander-Arnold situation at the moment, because he, here is the situation where actually the manager is supportive of his international career, just to, to, to play the contrast with what we've just been talking about. But Trent Alexander-Arnold, despite the fact he has achieved so much for Liverpool, won the Premier League, won the Champions League, he, he is not considered to be one of the top three right-backs in England, by Gareth Southgate, who might have a different understanding of his qualities and the way that that might fit into what he wants to do. So there's that aspect as well. But at the moment, like I said in the beginning, at the moment, if you're an English right back, you have to be of exceptional level to get into the England squad. If you're a centre-back for France, Imeric Laporte doesn't get in at the moment. I appreciate this is the season where he's not been playing as much as he had done in the past, but he still didn't then. So there is a sense, isn't there, that in some teams or some positions within those teams, it is very much the best because you don't have a squad that you are limiting because you wouldn't buy eight right backs in a club squad. But as an international manager, you have the opportunity to choose from all the right backs in the country or all the centre backs in the country. And therefore the competition is higher because of the eligible players than you would get anywhere else. And that does actually mean the international level is the highest level. It's just, you have to be quite convoluted to make it work. But also an international coach is picking a squad to play his style of football as well. And Alexander Arnold at the moment might not be the right player to be right back in the team in the way that Gareth Southgate wants them to play. You have to think about that as well. He's not just saying, I'm just going to pick the best 23 players that I've got. Surely he's got a way of playing and then thinks, right, who'd ha- what choice do I have in this position? And what type? What am I asking the player in that position to do? And then you, you kind of, well, if they're putting some thought into it, which I hope that they are, then that's, that's how they get to, they don't just kind of just think, oh, I'll just, because of the press, I'll just pick the, the, the players that they think I should pick and try and make a team out of them. Surely the planning is we're going to play a certain way. These players can, can do that for me. It's one of the things that's always mystified me a little bit about England squad selections for major tournaments is that, and, and you, you imagine with Trent Alexander-Arnold, that the decision has been made that a, a, a break will perhaps give him the opportunity to lift himself out of his it, the fog he's in at, at the moment. I don't think anyone's disputing that he is an England international footballer and will be for many years mm. to come. So a sensible decision has been made there because all too often you get to the stage where you're, you're looking at an England squad, or, and I'm sure it's the same for, for other, in other nations as well, where it's so difficult for them to get to the point where they're making the right decision about what is the, the correct collection of 23 players to get them through a tournament. They have to try and strike the right balance between the right squad and making sure you've selected your best players. And that mm. leads often to sort of a disjointed, uneven squad because, oh, well, we've got two exceptional right-backs and I've got to take them both. But that ends up hoovering up a space that could have been utilised by a more versatile player, for example, who could have been the backup right-back and could have also done a job as a defensive midfielder, for example. Well, you, I mean, the, the contrast, I think, is with, with Trent and with Eric Dyer. So... Funny enough, Alexander Arnold, I think, has improved over the last over the last few weeks. His form is better now than it was in in December, January, and February. He's he's on an upward curve. He does seem to have come out of the fud slightly. Eric Dyer's not playing very well. Eric Dyer's not start, not starting regularly for Tottenham, and he's not playing particularly well when he does. But Eric Dyer can play in probably three positions. Mm. So there is an argument that even if Eric Dyer isn't one of England's best twenty three footballers, and I think that's probably the case that he's not one of Eric Dyer's best twenty three footballers. Sorry, he's not one of England's. He is the best Eric Dyer. At the, at the moment, Eric, Eric Dyer of Tottenham Hotspur is not one of the best 23 Eric, Eric, Eric Dyers. Dyers. 
the he is the best Eric Dyer, but he's not he's not in England. He's probably not in England's top forty footballers, to be perfectly honest. But because he can play reasonably proficiently in three positions, you can make a case actually that he's he is an automatic. You can, you can take 20, 20 outfield players to the Euros. He should be the the nineteenth or the twentieth because he he provides that really valuable service of being able to fill in in three different roles. It's it's one of the reasons I think that Joe Gomez is a bit of a blow for for England because Gomez can play across the back line. So you take Gomez because he can play across the back line. There's not many players like like that. It's one of the reasons why maybe. So is Eric Dyer the new modern day Milner? To an extent, yeah, I think that's probably right. You play in midfield as well, can't he? But that, like as Steve says, you have to you have to pick your squad not just on. You don't just take the best 20 players. And I think that's one of the reasons that the international managers are kind of on a hide into nothing because whoever you leave out, there's going to be someone who says, well, they're better than them. And you think, well, yeah, Jaden Sancho is better than Eric Dyer, but you've also got six, six options to fill in the positions where, where Sancho can play. But Dyer covers you and effectively saves you two spaces. That's, that's a different conversation. That's why I got an opportunity for England that there was absolutely, absolutely nobody else that could play in the position. And they were playing with wing backs as well. So, he probably thought, well, I'm going to have to pick him because there is nobody else who can do this job. Well, that's not true, though, is it, Chinch? You've been very modest and humble. I'm not being no... modest. I, that is, was... Again, but again, the thought is there. Yes, he's playing well. He's playing in a system that I'm going to play and there is nobody else. It's a, you know what I mean? It's a no-brainer. It's a but it started with a nobody else, really, wouldn't it? But there was Graham Lasso. No, 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 he was injured. He was injured. Phil there Neville was, was injured. Phil Neville. Steve Guppy at his former Steve Guppy. Badly, 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 badly. Steve Froggart. Yeah, he Froggers, Froggers had uh, lost his leap. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, there was, I'm not under no illusions. There was there was no other option. Thank God for Chinch. Chinch, in in all definitions of the phrase international level, you are very much ticking all of those boxes. I could have, you know what, actually, you see, I would have been if given the opportunity, because I could have played more conservatively quite easily. And I was left footed. So I give the team some balance. So I would tick a lot of boxes to, to kind of just fill a void and pass the ball to more influential people. I could easily have done that, but a lot of, let's like, look at the, a lot of the attacking fullbacks that you see in the, in the premier league who play for instance, say Chilwell or anybody else who loves to get forward and get crosses in. They don't do that. Ashley Cole, Defended brilliantly, but he, he did the less defending playing for Chelsea and Arsenal than he did playing for, for England. So he, again, he had to adapt his progressive game to play for England, and he was a fantastic defender. But that's the problem I think for modern fullbacks is that for England you're not going to be able to do what you do for your clubs, and that's what I found. I'm really frustrated. But then I thought, well, if this is what keeps you playing at this level, and why wouldn't you want to keep playing because it's great and you have a possibility of playing in a tournament? But you do have to change everything about what got you there in the first place, which is kind of weird. Do you think it should be just carry on doing like Ward Prowse? You talk, carry on doing what you're doing for Southampton. He won't get the opportunity to do that. Certainly with his free kicks, he's, he's one of the best in the Premier League. He won't get that opportunity with England because of the players that are around him. So you'll think, well, why is he there? He's not doing anything. And there is an argument for that because he isn't doing what he, he, he does for Southampton, what he got into the squad in the first place. He'll have to adapt his game. And if as soon as he realises that and says, right, OK, I'll be very good at doing this now. I'll win the ball back. I'll, I'll you know, pass it a bit more simply than I do normally. That could keep him playing international football because he's changed into an international player. That is the mental thing about James Ward-Prowse. Is that if, if England get a free kick in James Ward-Prowse territory, 
which is now a specific, the, a specific place. Yes, UN, the UN are investigating <laughs> whether any international treaties have been breached by James Ward-Prowse territory. Mm. He probably won't take it, even though he is the Premier League's best and most efficient free kick taker. And would effectively only be in the squad to take free kick. Because I wonder where he's going to... a good midfielder. That's what yeah. makes him stand out, yeah. Oh, I think when a free kick's taken, he's so used to standing over it and delivering it. I wonder what he... What, what, where do I stand now? I've never not done this. So where do I go? What do I do? Do I pick somebody up? But what? Is that... Is no, that he'll, he'll be standing it, with other players with his hand, uh, hand over his yeah, mouth, talking issuing around, some yeah. sort of secretive yeah, yeah. instruction. But, <laughs> I'm, I'm really good at free kicks, yeah. but I'm not going to take this one. Is oh, it let, me have it, let me have it. Let me have it. <laughs> imagine, imagine you're me and put it in the top corner. <laughs> <laughs> is it feasible, though, that Southgate would pick Ward Prowse for the squad, which I think is, is, is possible, and then say, right, if, well, if, if Ward Prowse is on the pitch and we get a free kick, he takes it, not Harry Kane, not Marcus Rashford, not. Well, he should. He should because that's he's what he should do. That's what he's there for. But again, it's a kind of. And then it becomes maybe the stage in the game. People wanting to become front and centre. Then egos start to maybe play a part in that. You get a free kick twenty yards out. You're a goal down with ten minutes to go, and you've got Ward Prowse, Rashford, and Harry Kane. Who do you think is going to want to take that free kick? Then again, do you know what? Didn't didn't Kieran Trippier bang one in during the last World Cup? So semi final. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So there you go. Well, against Croatia. So, so if you let people it. do what they're really good at, yeah, yeah. It, it can pay dividends. Uh, this is, uh, as, as Roy mentioned, this is part, partly a different discussion, perhaps about squad building that we shall leave to another date and maybe bring out just prior to the Euros. I'd imagine might be a suitable that, time. That would be good yeah, timing for the content. Yeah, really yeah. good time. Forget everything we said in the last ten minutes because we'll yeah. be saying it again. If we, if we <laughs> picked, if we picked an England squad or. The, the cleverer members of this bunch picked an England squad. How close to Gareth Southgate, Southgate squad would it be? Do you think? Let's leave any discrepancies. Different podcasts. Different podcasts. Let's yes, leave that that. we can do Retor- that. I've given you an idea. I've given you an idea there. Yeah, Rory came up with the idea, and you just repeated it and made yes. it sound like it was yours. Yes, which is essentially, idea. like we said earlier, this is how we got to over two hundred episodes. It is time <laughs> for never mind Jack and Rory. What a soccer story! This is an Andy tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved. Well, as you know, I have absolutely no social media presence at all but i do understand there has been a bit of um technological traffic after a recent game that i did a manchester city southampton game and i needed a knight in shining armor and along came to my surprise stephen wyeth was there to defend my honor to fight my corner steve do you want to just explain a little bit about Kind of what, what happened after that game and a certain incident within that game. I, I didn't realise I was your PR representative. Oh, you are? I just don't pay but you. This it has emerged over the last couple of weeks that that is indeed an extra responsibility I've taken on. Now mm. that the kids are back at school, I've got a bit of free time. Uh, yeah, th- there seem to be an awful lot of people directed towards the Set Piece Menu Twitter account to ask, why does Andy Hinchcliffe hate Manchester City? <laughs> And this all seemed to come back to an incident during a football match that City won relatively comfortably anyway, and a penalty that a large majority of people thought should have been, but actually wasn't. Yeah, the thing is, and what you have to appreciate, or what I appreciated or or thought other people would appreciate, is you can occasionally get things wrong. But then if you get things wrong and you admit you maybe get things wrong, People then determining that you got it wrong for a certain reason, not you just actually the angles that you got and you came to the conclusion, you put a bit of thought into it, but you're actually maybe wrong and other people were right. That for certain people, Steve, wasn't good enough. And it seemed to be that I had some kind of agenda and I was thinking, well, I, I really have seen what's happened there, but I'm going to say something 
completely different because apparently I, I hate this club. Was that, was that the kind of th the theme of this? People seem to think, Chinch, that because you came through City's youth system mm. and because they, once upon a time, 30 years ago, a little bit more than that, cheered your name. <laughs> once. That, yeah. And, and offered you encouragement when you were breaking through into the professional game that you should only ever see anything through the kaleidoscope of Manchester City Blue. Right, but clearly that's not what I'm paid to do. But that well, is not something yeah, that, that certain kind of fans just will not see that? Or I don't think what you're paid to do right now is as important to them as what you were paid to do 35 years ago. But there is a difference there. Yeah, but it's not one that's, that's recognised because mm. when you have a, a contentious incident in a Man City game, and you try and see it objectively and say, the way I see it, even as you say, you can be wrong about it. Yeah, yeah, the way yeah. I see it is, is this wasn't a free kick for Man City or this, this was offside or blah, blah, blah. The fans are seeing exactly the same stuff. And this is true of all fans of all clubs or most of, it's true of fans from all clubs, not all fans of all clubs, but, but, but certainly every club has its, its contingent who will see exactly the same thing, but interpret it completely differently because they are, seeing the bits that they want to see and so if you don't see the bits that they want to see you are therefore wrong and the only possible explanation for your wrongness when it's so obvious to them what they can see is that you don't want to see what they want to see which means you are doing it out of spite and that's a problem for lots and lots of reasons and it's also funny enough that the, that the and I don't I'm, I'm in a position where I can maybe criticize the the tv companies that employ Stephen and, and Chinch the fact that there has been this rise in partisan commentators is not particularly helpful to that. Partisan co-commentators. Yeah, sorry, partisan co-commentators. The idea of putting Gary Neville on a Man United game or Jamie Carragher on a, on a Liverpool game with the assumption that they will be speaking to the fans. So when Man City, this bit is completely understandable. Man City fans will watch a Liverpool game that is being commentated on by Carragher and they will hear him expressing his subtle hopes that Liverpool win and his disappointment should Liverpool lose, which they do quite a lot of at the moment. Um, similar with Neville and Man United. When Man City fans then get Chinch on a Man City game, they will assume that Chinch is going to do the same for Man City as Cara and Neville do for Liverpool and Man United. But that's not how Chinch sees it, of course. But it applies as, as well if they get someone like Don Goodman, who is completely neutral to all of these clubs, they will also see that as, as evidence of an anti-Man City bias, that they don't get to have a Man City voice. And the solution to that is not for Chinch to suddenly become a Man City voice or for, you know, for Georgie Kincladze to be brought in as the co-coms for that game. It is. Have you heard for, something? <laughs> it is for Sky not to why give you say, Neville. Why did you say Georgie Kincladze? Have you heard something a, on the ground? Apparently he's coming in, yeah. Coming in as, swooping yeah, in. Swooping in with his dancing feet. Oh, the, no. Uh, given given Georgie Kinklazi's reticence to do any sort of public speaking, um, even when, you know, subsidised... Paid to. Yeah. <laughs> significantly. <laughs> yeah, I, but I that's would how, not but that's, expect that to be happening. Yeah, but that's day. how I started. I didn't do any press. And then look at me. Megastar. It's, it, it's so because they... Right, I'm going to keep an eye on him. You, we, you, you create the market. People want you because you're so silent, Chinks. That's what it is. But no, it's, it's, it, mm. the problem is the way to solve it is not... And I think this is where the TV companies have a duty to kind of think about the, the nature of distrust around football is not for you to suddenly start saying, well, that's got to be a Man City goal, because ultimately that fans have to start to accept. And to be honest, it's odd that they're, they're main, the ones who object are mainly middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. 
behaving like children. They have to maybe accept that that there isn't a an agenda against their club. That that most commentators, pro commentators, like most journalists, are just doing what the most interesting story is or the or the true story is. And the way that Sky and BT can help that is maybe my, by not giving Steve McManaman and Liverpool games. Maybe don't give Carrie Liverpool games. Maybe make sure that the commentators that you have for those games are neutral as they're supposed to be. But there should be. That, that's the danger. If you're saying we want you to be not necessarily on one side, but again, people know why you're doing the game and you clearly want a certain team to win. But it's a danger for the pundits if they're actually employed for that reason. Because if you do see something that is clearly, it's pretty obvious and it's against the team that you've support or played for. I, do you then think, well, can I actually s- say that? Or are people expecting me to ignore that? That's, no, to be that fair. That can't happen either, can it? No, to be, and to be fair, Neville and Carragher are pretty good at that. Yeah, even yeah, when, yeah. Even when they're doing their 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 team, you know, Carragher will say that's a penalty. They mm-hmm. he will say yeah. Liverpool have played badly because, because they've been given a position of authority, bearing in mind the the, the relationship with the club that they are commentating yeah. upon, and they yeah. have been put in that position. That characteristic is something that they have been permitted to use. Therefore, they retain that authority to be able to criticize their club. And too. and it's and it, yeah. it's the same as you you've spoken about in the past, Rory. If you, if you were to write a negative piece about Arsenal. Arsenal fans would be like, why haven't you written a negative piece about Tottenham? Like, yeah. Well, I have. You just didn't read that one. You noticed it today because I wrote it about your club today. And I suppose that's the same. People will notice anything that they perceive to be biased in favour of their former clubs from Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher and won't notice with the same degree of clarity yeah. when they're giving a very honest assessment of, of something that their their former club has not got right. So this that applies across across media because mm. so Miguel Delaney, not to cite him again, wrote a piece not long ago, sort of worrying that Manchester City's dominance of the Premier League is is indicative of some broader truth about competitive balance within football, which it is. It it just yeah. is like if individual events happen in football and they have a broader meaning, and fans don't like it when you when you apply that broader meaning, it looks like you're diminishing their success. You're not. It's just that sometimes the broader meaning is, is more important to more people ultimately. So if Newcastle go down this year, there will be a broader meaning to that 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 is not necessarily the, the kind of the parochial concern of Newcastle fans. It doesn't mean it's it's saying that it's not a disaster for Newcastle fan, for Newcastle or terrible for the fans or really sad. It just means that there's a broader meaning to it. But Miguel wrote that piece about City and there, the, the, there was a lot of mockery on Twitter saying, <laughs> you weren't writing this when Liverpool won the lead last year. He did. He wrote not exa- not the exact same piece, but again, Miguel writes all of his thoughts down. So he wrote a piece about the fact that Liverpool were walking the Premier League is not a healthy sign for the Premier League, and it's not. But fa- Man City fans wouldn't have read that. And the thing that I, d- I really don't understand that kind of baffles me is I don't quite get, and it's something I genuinely wrestle with. I don't quite get what Man City fans want people to write or say about their club. Is it meant to just? And it d- it does seem to apply mostly with Man City fans at, th- at this point. It's true. Again, all fans are the same, so it could be that other fans of another club would react in exactly the same way. But but what are we just all meant to write down? Kind of Man City are brilliant, full stop. Yep. They are wonderful to watch and Guardiola's a genius and Kevin De Bruyne is amazing. Because ultimately, a lot of that at this point is just taken as read. You, you, yep. The reason you don't write it, and this is, maybe this is journalism not explaining itself well, the reason you don't write it or the reason you don't say it is because that's what you expect to happen. And you write you write things or you comment on things that are a bit different. And yeah, exactly. And if nothing has changed between then and now, you do? don't write the same piece. So in summation, Chinch, it uh, should have been a penalty. Mm-hmm. You were wrong. 
but you weren't wrong because you hate Manchester City. Very simple. Spot on. Uh, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I don't even think Chinch was wrong, by the way. I thought, look, yeah, a slightly heavy touch from Alex McCarthy. Yes, he might have controlled it like a baby elephant. But I thought it was a, a really well-timed challenge on Phil Foden. I don't know what all the fuss is about. <laughs> oh, just wait for the social media backlash. <laughs> so I've already dealt with it, Chinch. I could oh, watch off a duck's back. Just dealt with it on your behalf. Last just time. copy and paste.